Hey, Ken Stringfellow, how you doing, buddy? That is a huge question in 2020. Yeah, no shit, right? Yeah. So, but all things considered, I'm hanging in there. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually having to record out of my bedroom. So, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> Welcome to 2020, right? Mm-hmm. Cool, cool. So, uh, let's get a couple of questions out of the way. Um, most artists don't like to talk about their first albums, but um, failure is one of my favorites. So. <laughs> why don't we I talk no about that? talking about it I, I i see it for what it is yeah it's it's you know perfect power pop right um so i saw your it's not for me to judge right so i saw your uh um was it uh 2018 i guess it was the 25th anniversary when was that a 30th anniversary oh, 30th anniversary yeah that's yeah, right in 2018 we did the 30th anniversary tour with the frosting on the beater lineup myself john hour Dave Fox on bass and Mike Musburger on drums. Oh no, I'm talking about the uh, uh, the acoustic show that you and John did at Triple Door. Uh, oh yeah, we also did. Uh, well, we do those pretty regularly. I think we did one in 2018. Did we? Did we? Yeah, I guess we did because we also we did that and the Kirkland Performance Center. Mm, that's um, right. But we also put the Triple Door in 2014 when the reissue of Failure came out. So. Yeah, that's the one I'm talking about. On the way. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. was it. That was it. So it was funny, like when you were doing uh, "Believe in Something Other" and and you hit the line about being 22, and you just stopped, mm-hmm. and you're like, "Jesus fucking yeah. Christ!" <laughs> you're like, <laughs> "It is what it is." You're like, yeah, that was 30 years ago, man. You know, mm-hmm. it's crazy shit. So you've been extraordinarily busy. Um, you know, you've you've done stuff in Senegal and you know all throughout Europe and whatever. Um. So how do you how do you do that all the time? Like you're always on the move. You're always somewhere different. <laughs> you just do it. Um, obviously, uh, it's a little different this year, but in general, I I don't know. Just I think since the band you know went through its initial breakup in 1998, mm-hmm. um, where I was forced to diversify my whole shtick. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, I'm just moving this here real quick. No I just, you know, was uh, decided that I would always pursue all my interests and and um, kind of dictate my own schedule, etc. Of course, that that gets taken over by certain projects, at certain times. You know, if I, mm-hmm. I I will commit to a tour, I spend a lot of time with REM, mm-hmm. etc. Um, but generally, I just kind of just do whatever interests me, and and I'm interested in a lot of things, so it's okay to keep moving in that sense. So when was the last? Mean, when's the last? I do a lot of things, but I'm just also very efficient. Mm-hmm. So I should also mention that there's also lots of times where I'm not moving. It's just nobody mm-hmm. sees those. <laughs> cool. When was the last time you had a real job? I, I'm sorry, not that this isn't a real job. You know what I mean? Like well, you had to like you know have a show up and and you know do work. Right, work for somebody else. Exactly. Um, yeah, 1989. Good for you, man. Good for you. Cool. So you were what, 19, 20 when Failure came out? Uh, when it was released, I was still 19. Yeah. That's so I awesome. turned 20 later in the year. That's awesome. That that following year, I actually had you you guys play at um, a beach party for Edmonds High School. Yeah. <laughs> that was I a lot of fun. <laughs> it was actually yeah. a lot of fun because I had just seen you open for the replacements, I think like the week before or two weeks. Some, it was really close to mm-hmm. there. So that was that was kind of crazy. And then the next thing I knew, I was at um, Shoreline 
Um, I, I went mm-hmm. to Evergreen for exactly one day and uh-huh. decided it totally was not for me. Like literally showed mm-hmm. up, unpacked my stuff, had a day, packed all my shit back in my truck and came back to Seattle. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so I ended up going to Shoreline and, and I met this this kid there. Um, weird little kid, you know, he'd sit outside and smoke and we'd smoke together and whatnot. And uh, he's like, oh yeah, John Hour's my brother. Oh, funny. And I just thought he was, you know, like, I don't know. And it turns out, yeah, it was Nathan. And mm-hmm. uh, that was right before um, uh, Dear 23 came out. And mm-hmm. uh, I still thought he was full of shit, right? And uh, <clears throat> then one day he calls, he, we were out smoking. And he's like, yeah, John, just call me. And, and like, you know, he said, we're in a limo in LA, you know? And uh, <laughs> anyway, so I thought that was really funny, funny. you know? Um, but yeah, the, those two albums especially were uh, um, really, really important for me, you know, growing up. And I think it was, I mean, obviously it was the first uh, introduction to the Posies for people in Seattle. And you guys didn't quite fit in, right? Like you, the, the power- Yeah, I mean, we, we came from a different place. We were, first of all, we were quite a bit younger uh, than the bands that we all know and love. I mean, by two or three years, but mm-hmm. at that age, it makes a difference. You know, we were just at a high school, basically. Uh, and we came from Bellingham. We didn't grow yeah. up in, in Seattle. And even though, you know, like Kurt Cobain came from Aberdeen, so he's not from Seattle and blah, 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 blah. Um, I know just Bellingham is just a little, um, it's close enough to know some things, but far enough to not know everything. And so it, you have a special brand of, pre-internet naivete that you can acquire by growing up in Bellingham. Sure. Of it's a very safe place. Yeah. Um, but it's not the big city. Yeah, you you were you were dub at the time, right? What was that? Were you at U dub at the time? Yes. I, I left Bellingham to attend the University of Washington. Right. I graduated high school in nineteen eighty six. Um I was already playing in bands and doing things with John uh in high school. Um but you know, I'm a year older, so I graduated in 86. He was still in high school until 87. And uh, then he attended Western in Bellingham for a year, mm-hmm. um, part of a year. I mean, really, because by that time, our record started to take off. And then he was like, screw this. I'm going to Seattle. Yeah. I think I bought that at, at uh, the cassette at, at uh, um, what's the name of the store? Uh, and you just wrote that. Cellophane Square. At cellophane? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. And it kind of came out of nowhere and suddenly it was like, I forget, I think it was like number two or three when I first bought it. And I just bought it yeah, basically. And, and basically that's just a fluke of one that's boils into one thing. It's basically that we dropped copies off here and there and we consigned them at cellophane uh, with Scott McCoy, mm-hmm. uh, who was working there at the time. And of course he reviewed it in the rocket and that helped. But, but what really made it go viral was, that it was added into rotation straight away without anybody working it. And like, we were just kids with cassettes in our backpacks. I mean, there was no, there was no promo madmen, hitmen, whatever going on. Um, they, we got added to KJet and that's a, you know, commercial station. Mm-hmm. And once you get added to commercial radio, <clears throat> all kinds of interesting things happen. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, <clears throat> so you released failure. And then um, shortly thereafter, how did you meet Broderick? How did, how did the whole Sky Crows Mary thing happen? The first Sky oh, Crows well, Mary album. 
Yeah, well, I knew Roderick before. I met Roderick when I was at Mm -hmm. Uh, I took a drama class and just, you know, check it out. And the tasks assigned to us, you know, Drama 101 people were basically to assist uh, directors and, you know, in other aspects, uh, whatever is interesting to you um, in, in, in the theatrical production. Mm-hmm. So I was the kind of script uh, supervisor or whatever, like just basically making sure that everybody's got their lines and all this kind of stuff for a small play. Uh, basically helping the director keep everybody on task and make sure that, you know, if anybody gets stuck on a line, like I, you know, would be following along. And of course, what was cool is I memorized the play, uh, three-act play, like that weekend. Mm-hmm. So I, I knew it by heart, which impressed the director. But uh, Roderick was one of the actors. He was, you know, a couple years older, so he was well into the theater department. That's cool. That's cool. Um, so, you know, and he and I just hit it off. He was into uh, the same, not, well, not the same, but into some, some of the music I was into and interested he was into some things that even I didn't know about and um he was interested in doing a kind of performance art piece mm-hmm. and um you know I'd mentioned I play a little music and he wanted some help on the musical end of that. So we started working together on that and I got John involved. Mm-hmm. Um and we did like this elaborate, you know, very typical of the era performance art piece with, you know, just anti war, anti everything um kind of thing and we all just you know we became pals and actually um john offered to do a whole record there's a cassette there's actually a cassette pre-sky cries mary it's called um grinder cease which Mm -hmm. is what the became the you know kind of morphed into the title of the sky cries mary album Mm -hmm. but there's actually a cassette thing of stuff that that roderick and i did just like on four tracks and stuff like that oh cool um that would be pretty hard to find now yeah i'm sure um But then John offered uh, kind of as, I guess, like a birthday present to Roderick to go up and record um, at you know, the studio in Bellingham that, that John had in his dad's house. That's awesome. I mean, that's where we did Failure. Mm-hmm. And so we did this record. And it's really creative, cool, um, experimental project uh, that, that kind of <clears throat> incorporated some things that, you know, like John was a really good drum machine and sequence programmer. Mm-hmm. Um, in those days of standalone drum machines and standalone sequencers, he had a real knack for that. And of course, the Posies didn't have any need for that that talent. Um, mm-hmm. So it was fun for him to use those skills. It's awesome. Um, we also did some organic stuff, you know, with me playing bass and John playing drums. Mm-hmm. Um, so the the record, the Scott Resume record, is kind of a mix of those two things. So Roderick had gone to clown school. That's right. Just like David Bowie. <laughs> Uh, in Paris, and while being over there, he'd made some contacts, um, and he made a contact with a label, and stayed in touch with them, and so they they put out that record. So that record initially only came out in France. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it took me a, a, like three years to find the original Lively Art pressing of that. Yeah, and uh, I still have. Uh, it's too far away, but I was going to grab it. The the mm-hmm. pictures on the back are hysterical because it's like you know. There's John, he's trying to look tough, and Roderick kind of like, you know, gothic and whatever, and Ken, you're just smiling. You get the big smile on your face, like, hi! Sort of irrepressible that way. (laughs) Not not really a goth, as it turns out. It was awesome. So you you also did Donate the Dirt, right? Yes. Okay. We did a follow-up EP with that cover of uh, Spanish Castle Magic. Yep. 
Yeah, and there was. Um, I think there's some stuff on that EP that we didn't do. Mm -hmm. I think it's a, a mix of a few things, uh, if I recall correctly. Yeah, and but Steve Fisk did a couple of was, remixes too, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so around this time, we played live shows as well mm -hmm. um, as a three-piece, just bass, drums, and Roderick. Yeah, I saw one of the. Cool. We did a gig opening for Para Ubu at the Moor. I saw that. Uh, and we did uh, Bumper Shoot. Mm -hmm. And I saw a show. Maybe that's it. Yeah, it might have been post you and, and John leaving, but um, there were a bunch of shows. Like it, there was a little art space in the market that I saw Roderick a couple of times do shows. It would have been like. Yeah, I don't think that was us. Yeah, 90, 90 91, somewhere in there. But all right. So, you, you know, you did all this stuff. And then obviously your influences are, are you know, like Big Star is a, a big influence. And, and you obviously turned a lot of people on to Big Star with, you know, covers and, and just mentioning them in the press and whatnot. But what was like it like in every, in, in every set? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So what was it like in what was it, 92 when you got approached by Big Star? Like, what was that we like? Really get a, it's, it's, it's not quite that. Um, <laughs> first of all, I was in 93, but oh, okay. Uh, essentially, there was Okay, so Jody, uh, you know, Jody Stevens works at Arden Studios, mm -hmm. the place where Big Star made all their records, and you know, the the label that made those records, you know, Arden Records was mm -hmm. based. It was all John Fry, basically, uh, who uh, was a young recording engineer and businessman and um, just a cool guy, knew a lot of things, started a studio uh, in his garage and his early business partner was fred smith because they went to high mm -hmm. school together uh fred smith who started fedex mm -hmm. um anyway uh that studio started moved into a real space became a real studio blah blah blah, blah. and the rest as they say is history so the big star records were made there and big star was comprised of young people who were hanging out at that studio and into rock and roll um the primary clientele of Arden Studios was soul music because that was the what was going on in Memphis at that time, and mm -hmm. so much great soul music being made. But some Anglophile rockers made beautiful records. Blah blah blah. They're my favorite records of all time. So what can I say? <laughs> uh, but you know, Jody was in the band, and eventually, when the band didn't go as far as everybody hoped and didn't last, uh, Jody just stayed on working at the studio from the '70s until today mm -hmm. um so, he still uh, work Fry, the proprietors passed away but yeah jody is the studio manager that's awesome yeah and you know basically runs the production company whatever it is you know that basically like you know overseeing the legacy and catalog of the production company um so anyway like jody's the guy that you know and not answers the phone but you know handles the professional correspondence so mm -hmm. When we we looked into working there at one point in 1990, he's the guy that signed the letter that accompanied the brochure that they sent us, and we were absolutely flabbergasted to discover that he I can imagine the guy from Big Star works at the studio, you know, so that that was not expected, but we we didn't end up working there, but we stayed in touch, and Jody became a fan and supporter of ours, so that that put us on the path to being on the radar of whomever might be involved in Big Star in the future, though in 1990, 1991, there was no future. Mm. Uh, you know, 
Alex Chilton had spent years sort of making it quite clear he was fairly disdainful of that period of his music. He didn't mm. think it, it was as good. He didn't think it was that good. He didn't see what he didn't see what the big fuss was all about. Um, Chris Bell, the other songwriter, had not only quit the band back in the day, but by that time had long been dead. Mm-hmm. So it didn't ever seem like Big Star would ever be a thing again um, once they stopped playing in 1974. Uh, but, well, p- people made inquiries now and then because the records, you know, stayed, uh, well, actually grew in, in kind of reputation over the years. This acquired, you know, legendary status, one of those uh, unicorn records, you know, that, that you just can't believe when you hear it that it's not the biggest thing ever because it's it's very pop, but it's also very intelligent. Um, it's sophisticated, but also very relatable. It's kind of hits all the marks, and the songs are just wonderful and beautifully produced. It, it's um, it's almost like a it's nursery not a rhyme. Diamond. Yeah, it's almost like a nursery rhyme in a lot of ways. You know, like especially like thirteen. You know, songs like that are just like very. Yeah, there's a purity to it. Yeah. Um, so you know, it, it it was definitely musically it should have been a contender, but it just you know there were some bad business deals made and bad luck and some it just didn't get to where it needed to go, mm-hmm. and ultimately, sometimes great records don't sell. No, they it don't. Just happens. They, they don't. just don't connect to the public, the wider imagination, for whatever reason. Um, so, anyway, you know, people would call up uh, because Jody was findable. Uh, you know, they'd ring him up from time to time and kind of inquire about putting Big Star back together if they'd be interested. Uh, mm-hmm. Big Star is really legendary in the UK. I mean, like every single music fan loves Big Star. They're mm-hmm. they're at the same kind of vibe as the Velvet Underground pretty much every British music fan. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Jody would do due diligence and call up Alex, and Alex would say, not interested, and that would be that. They'd been used to that game for 10, 15 years. Uh, these kids um, at a radio station, college radio station in Columbia, Missouri, KCLU, um, did the same thing. They thought it'd be so cool to have Big Star play at our spring concert that's awesome they looked up jody jody you know they said would it be possible jody said i'm gonna ask alex but that means no but i'll do it he rang up alex and i said yeah sure why not all of a sudden mm-hmm. uh so that led to panic because who's gonna how is this gonna work there's two guys left in the band mm-hmm. um andy hummel the original bass player had long dropped out of music and wasn't really interested in getting back into it. And in fact, he really couldn't. He had a serious job in aeronautics. Uh, so they started trying to brainstorm. When I say they, I mean uh, Mike and Jeff, uh, Mike Fulvani and Jeff Breeze, uh, who sadly passed away last week. Um, oh, the, the DJs from KCOU started thinking, well, how do we, you know, we got to, this is a big deal. We got to support this and make it a real event. So let's get you know, some known big star fans involved. Um, so, of course, Paul Westerberg came to mind. Um, Matthew Sweet, uh, Mike Mills from R.E.M. They, all these people were actually asked, mm-hmm. and all of them said no for various reasons. Um, the most common reason being, I do not want to be the guy who destroyed the reunion of the greatest band of all time. <laughs> Definitely. So that was basically Westerberg's response. 
and and Matthew Sweet's response and uh, Evan Damdo's response. They're like, there's no way I'm going to destroy that legacy by my incompetence. Um, and they, you know, Jody had suggested uh, us, you know, as a possibility, but people didn't really, we weren't really that big of a name. I mean, we've been, we, you know, we were on a major label, we had a record out, mm -hmm. but we weren't like at the level of like a Paul Westerberg or whatever. But um, as people started dropping out, we started gaining a little traction. And I basically did a little lobbying on our behalf, uh, you know, sort of buttonholing Jeff Breed at South by Southwest that year, which is kind mm -hmm. of amazing to me because that was in March and the show was in April. Wow. So it still wasn't decided in March, like what was <clears throat> going to be happening. But, but then again, like, you, you have to let us do this. Right. Then again, you're, the guys. you're like 22, 23 at the time. So you're like, fuck it, I'll do whatever, you know, I can do anything, right? Well, it's not a, not a question for me. It, it's more a question for their own organization that one month before the show, they didn't have a band. Oh, true. Um, I'm, I mean, for me, I don't give a shit. If you told me tomorrow to play with them, I'd do it. <laughs> but um, it's more about, like, just that if it was still open, it was anybody's game, mm -hmm. you know, a month before the show. Anyway, so I, th I think I made a pretty convincing argument, and Jody was really gunning for us, thinking that, uh, that, that John and I, as a unit, would, would really enhance the thing, especially because of the vocal harmonies, which, you mm -hmm. know, we, we do have that specialty, which is kind of unique um, in, you know, your alternative rock bands. Mm -hmm. Not a lot of them are that, that harmony-laden. There are some, but that wasn't the rule, especially at that time. Um, so we got the gig. Mm-hmm. Uh, which was, you know, I mean, uh, how to describe, you know, playing the, the first and what was supposed to be the only reunion show of this mythical band that happens to be your favorite band and you're playing in it. It's, I don't really know if there's an analogous situation. No. It's so weird and so wonderful and so improbable, like so many things in my life um, that uh, I don't have really a context for it. It was just an amazing opportunity. So how well, how well did you sleep the night before? Actually, hold on, let's back up. Hmm? How long did you guys have to rehearse before the show? Well, uh, years, because we've listened to these records so many <laughs> times that we, we I, I meant, already. I meant with the other, with the, the two members. Like, I mean, you know, like, did you guys? Yeah, sit? well, that um, basically a couple weeks out. Um, now, I, we'd met Jody, but we'd never met Alex. Mm -hmm. Alex was known to be a little bit reclusive and right. just kind of, he didn't play that much. You know, he just kind of chilled and did his thing and got in New Orleans and did the occasional box tops reunion and solo gigs. He's mm -hmm. like really low key, but also just not in the game. Um, so we'd never met him. Uh, and we'd met Jody, of course, and Jody's very affable and very friendly and really mm -hmm. easy to get to know. He's a really nice person and very open. Um, so that put us a little bit at ease, you know. Jody's not an intimidating character; he's very mm -hmm. warm. Um, anyway, we we once word of this show got around, um, Bud Scapa, who had written the original review of one of Big Star's albums in Rolling Stone back in the seventies, uh, was now running um, a, a label, an imprint inside BMG, and they had the success of Matthew Sweet uh, mm -hmm. to sort of justify their their projects. Uh, <laughs> so Bud reached out and said, hey, I'd like to record this and release it. 
Mm -hmm. That's cool. So we had a little bit of money in advance for that, which allowed us to fund rehearsing. Otherwise, we would really have had no money. I'm, I'm not sure how well that Columbia, Missouri gig paid, but we certainly weren't going to get the money in advance. <laughs> um, so we got a, we got a little cash so we could, you know, Jody and Alex could fly out to Seattle and we could rehearse. And mm -hmm. Jim Rondinelli, uh, who recorded the live album, who now lives here in Seattle, amazingly mm -hmm. enough, uh, came out and recorded the rehearsals and kind of got things, you know, just got we got the team to getting familiar with itself. Mm -hmm. So that was the first day we met Alex. We rehearsed, you know, for two days, mm -hmm. um, which was fine, you know, to get a set together, considering that we knew the material real well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Jody's great. He'd been, he'd been woodshedding on his own, just playing with headphones and getting into mm -hmm. shape and everything. And, and Alex, you know, he, he was right there. So it was um, a natural fit. That's awesome. That's awesome. So I'm just trying to imagine this, like, um, you're, you're basically talking about every, you know, teenage boy's wet dream right there, right? So suddenly you're like, you're, you know, so playing on Zeppelin or something. But well, okay. Well, I see where you're going. A wet dream. How's that? Maybe not the <laughs> big one, but you know, a one. Um, so you finish that whole thing. And, you know, you're done. You know, the, the, the show is over. And I, I imagine it was probably relatively small, right? The yeah. show yeah a couple thousand people oh well i mean that's you know that's not small and for Columbia, <coughs> missouri that's a that's a big day that's the entire that's town basically <laughs> you, you could probably rob the, the bank that day <laughs> right nobody, so nobody left um, so but i should also mention that this is the exact same i mean that that show was like on a sunday um and frosting the beater was released that Tuesday, because records used to come out on Tuesday. Oh, that's right. Um, and so we'd had the release show uh, for the press, like private, a private show for press and radio and stuff like that in Seattle on the Friday night. Flew in a plane after the show to Columbia, Missouri. Uh, I guarantee it was not a direct flight. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and, uh, and rehearsed one more time without Alex and then did the show the next day during the day. So it was a pretty intense week. Wow. Wow, that's great, man. A lot going on. And in between all that time, you had something that, that I, I'm ashamed I didn't even know what happened until a couple of years ago. You had Ringo Starr cover Golden Blunders. Like, how did that happen? Oh, yeah, true. <laughs> that's the year before. I, I didn't even uh, know about that, honestly, until like, I think two years ago. And I found, I was like, yeah, what the, what the really fuck is this? Again, <laughs> My whole life story is just one improbable thing after another. Mm -hmm. um, it's almost like a hoax. Yeah. Like my whole life is like, it's, it's like a, basically a hoax. If I tried to convince people that, that this was my life, <laughs> that it actually wasn't true, I mean, it would sound like a very delusional person indeed. Mm -hmm. I just, oh, yes, you just joined all your favorite bands. Oh, yeah, and <laughs> one of the Beatles covered one of your songs. Sure. And we're sure only getting started here, too. Like, there's a lot more to go. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, so basically how that came about, of course, the song is Golden Blunders, which is already like a play on words on a Beatles title. Mm -hmm. And it kind of echoes some of the refrain. There's like a hint of some of the lines from Carry That Weight, mm -hmm. um, that big chorus that Ringo sings on Abbey Road. Mm -hmm. um, so it kind of had some Ringo in it already. Uh, basically... You know, it was a single, so it was on the radio and things mm -hmm. like that. And Peter Asher, 
uh, record producer, manager, um, you know, and artist. You know, he's part of the Peter and Gordon duo during the 60s and from Swinging London and had a lot to do with the career of Linda Ronstadt, among others. Uh, you know, so he was like a, a player. Mm -hmm. uh, he was down, I think, somewhere in the Deep South uh, on a musical mission of some kind, and he heard Golden Blunders on the radio, and he, like, pulled over, and he said, God, like, he's like, that's such kind of a cheeky thing to do, to play with, like, a Beatles title, but it's a really good song, mm -hmm. you know? So he researched what it was, and found out, you know, got the lyrics and all that kind of stuff. And as it happens, he was called in to produce this Ringo album. And he was like, you know what? I actually think Ringo should do this song. That's incredible. And he he, he played it for Ringo. And, and Ringo's like, yeah, that's cheeky. I get it. And then, and then Peter handed him the lyrics and just said, just check out the story here. And Ringo's like, that's, wow, that's really deep. It's, it's quite... <laughs> It's going, you know, these are kids, I assume, and they're writing about this relationship stuff. It's pretty heavy. It's like, that's, I got to give that props up. That's really, it's a really good song. It's great. Um, so, yeah, they did a version. We had no idea. Yeah. Did you ever meet you, Ringo? You can, you, can rec you can record a cover version of whoever you want. Of course. Um, people sometimes, go, can, can we cover one of your, I'm like, if you can do whatever you want. We can't <laughs> stop you. You'll, you'll, you'll just make us money. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so whatever, but um, yeah, so it was a big surprise, yeah. um, really neat one. But yeah, we met Ringo because um, we, we were down in LA and um, we went to the record release show. Um, and you know, that was, uh, well, he still does. He still does the, the all-star band, All-Star of Two mm -hmm. Hours, where he puts together a band of, of notable musicians and they do, you know, Beatles and Ringo stuff, but they also have their little moment to do stuff from their career. And there's been all kinds of people in the all-star band. Um, but the, that year, um, you know, there was uh, Burton Cummings was in it and Todd Rundgren, mm. um, Dr. John was in it. So uh, that was pretty cool. Um, I didn't really, we didn't really meet Todd, but um, the record release, I remember talking to Burton Cummings and I'm a really big fan of the Guess Who. So mm -hmm. that was quite a delight. He was very charming and, and had lots of good stories and really nice guy. And of course, Ringo, Ringo, I mean, yeah. it's just like, it's, it's like, it's like meeting a Muppet. It's like, it's like <laughs> your favorite childhood personality is there talking to you. Yeah. Um, so, and he's, he's like that. I mean, he's, he's a, a character. He's very warm, mm -hmm. uh, very funny. Um, you know, he's just a, he's just a good, solid dude, you know, mm -hmm. very nice person. And he's, you know, just ludicrously famous. So um, it's just hard not to get a little excited about the whole thing because of all the things, those songs and his voice and everything meant to you and means to everybody else. It just mm -hmm. kind of, and he's just, he's very relaxed. You know? yeah. uh, he puts you right at ease. He's one of those. Yeah. And maybe that's just a drummer thing. Oh, maybe, maybe. I mean, I when I think of Ringo, I think of somebody who's like, um, he is ludicrously famous, but also somebody who could probably walk down the street. And if he wasn't wearing those glasses, probably people wouldn't know who the hell he was, right? Uh, so he's like, sure I'm going to go with you on that one. Well, it depends on where he I is, think they, of course. I think they'd figure it out. Well, probably eventually. Um, he has that. Because that, that, he's always doing this. <laughs> yeah, that's you know, right. Also, he's, he's, like he's, love. And he's got that out eventually. He's got that that accent that's just like, okay, 
especially in America, yeah. we don't hear that very often, right? So it's like, oh yeah, no, I know that, who that uh, is, right? Prodigious hooter, as they yeah. say in uh, whatever they say in Hard Day's Night. Exactly, exactly. So that's actually. Um, but yeah, so I actually got to sing with Ringo, which is even cooler. really. Um, well, first of all, we opened for Ringo uh, when that tour came to C Seattle. They played the Gorge, and oh, really? they opened the show, and that was fun. Um, and then a couple years later, just by coincidence, a friend of mine um, became his personal assistant. Oh, wow. And so uh, when the all-star band that year was coming back to Seattle, they were playing Summer Nights at the Pier. Mm -hmm. um, Ruthann said, hey, you know, you should really come, and I think you should sing with Ringo. I'm like, sure, yeah, I should also, like, carry the torch at the Olympics. I should right. do a lot of things, but you have to be invited mm -hmm. to do those things. I like when fans always ask me, like, why don't, why don't you guys play, like, the main stage at Glastonbury? That'd be really good for you guys. <laughs> right. like, yeah, sure, but it doesn't really work like that. Right. I mean, great idea. You know, it never occurred to me to go play That's in the right. main stage at Glastonbury. I should look into that. That'd and, be a really helpful thing for my career. And we should, we should sell out five nights at Hammersmith. Like, why not? Yeah, whatever. <laughs> um, anyway, so I was like, yeah, I was like, I'm not, I mean, Ringo doesn't, I mean, he's got some people in his band that are pretty good so she's like no like i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna talk to him i'm sure he'll be mm -hmm. into it i'm like whatever so anyway uh that day of the show she's like okay you're in um and i'm like wow i'm what i'm she's like just come to the show we'll figure it out so you have like two hours okay. of notice or whatever it is right and you're like really well, the afternoon but i don't know what it is yet All right um so i get down to the show and uh you know re-meet Ringo and of course he's like very complimentary like love the song it's a great song you guys are very talented <laughs> I love it and uh Barbara his wife who's really super nice mm -hmm. you know so we're chatting back there and he said well I hope you'll come and sing with us tonight Ken and I'm like I was like yeah sure like what are we doing he's like you'll know and so off he goes and plays oh, the show. terrifying uh so okay um so after a certain point in the show I we're getting towards a kind of a finale, mm -hmm. as it were. And uh, Ringo said, well, we'd like to bring out one of your hometown uh, great musicians from here in Seattle. Please welcome to the stage, Ken Stringfellow. Oh, my God. And so I start to go up the ramp. And so there's, you know, security. You see this, like, 20-something in black flag T-shirt, not looking like the classic <laughs> rock musicians in the All-Star Band. And the security just dives on me. And, um, you know, Barbara runs up and she's, beating on them with her tiny fists and like no he's supposed to be up there you idiots and Ringo's like come on now don't keep us waiting it's like you know the source of every anxiety of nightmare I've ever had it's like the stage is there and you can't get to it somehow mm -hmm. suddenly you have no bass amp you gotta go build one um anyway they security lets me go and I get up there and Ringo puts me on the mic with Randy Bachman I got uh John Otwistle playing bass over there to my left wow uh got Billy Preston playing keys um it's kind of like serious <laughs> and uh what was the song well it was with a little help from my friends and you're oh, damn right perfect. I knew it that's perfect and I got to sing the could it be anybody oh that's uh, awesome with Randy was sharing a mic you know it was fucking awesome I mean what can I say it was just incredible just imagine though if you and then I got to party with John Whistle. oh that's awesome which is taking it to another level just, just imagine. Of course, has been sober for years, and, and right. he also, you know, is of the means that he just flies home uh, every night after the show. He goes back to LA. Sure. 
um, but the band stays on, and so they're staying at the West End, and you know, I was like, yeah, I'm gonna party with John Otwistle, and he was <laughs> going for it. It was like good times, and That's he was great. Awesome. He's like just full of great stories and whatnot as well, and very affable. Mm -hmm. um, and just sucking down the cocktails and flirting with the waitresses, uh, not waitresses, stewardesses, sorry, uh, as uh, the Westin is where some flight crews stay. So, mm -hmm. so oh, he's yeah. taking well advantage of the situation. <laughs> um, I don't wish to speak ill of the deceased. No, of course not. But, um, he was just in the moment, let's just say. He was in the yeah. moment. Yeah. And uh, he's like, I was talking to him, asking him some questions, like, oh, you guys speak up. I'm a bit mutton. You know, like uh, talking about the slang, Mutton Jeff, Jeff. Mm -hmm. So just imagine, though, if he had called you up on stage and it was a song you didn't know. Like, he, he picked, like, something deep in the catalog. Just, Ken Stringfellow, and you're like, uh-huh. You have to go pretty deep in the catalog. <laughs> but see, that's what would happen to me, right? Like, I mean, if, uh, if, if I were ever be in that sort of situation, to would be like, it's a song called XYZ, we recorded in 1935, right? And I'd be like, oh, okay, great. So. Oh, well, yeah, well. Depends on what you're listening to, I guess. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, actually, we're gonna do side two of Tales from Topographic Oceans. <laughs> exactly. Here's you the know, sitar. That was my first sitar. concert, by the way. I saw, oh, yes, and really? Kansas. I think it was like Tales of Topographic. I was like seven or something. My my parents wow. dragged me to it. I, I forget something like I that. I saw Yes at the Sky Church. Really? Yeah. Um, in like 2000 and 2001, somewhere around there, it was fucking amazing because they'd spent the week rehearsing at Paul Allen's house. And oh, that's right. What's his name? Act, they did a, they did a show at the Sky Church. I mean for like mm -hmm. eight hundred people. Yeah, that's right, because uh, Alan unbelievable. Alan, what's his name? Alan White, right? Yeah, Alan yeah, White lives yeah, there. Yeah. yeah, he lives here, so yeah. Um all right, so here, here's a here's a nice little segue because I don't want to go down the yes pathway. <laughs> um, okay. So we'll just say no then. Exactly no. So you've been you've been uh, primarily in in France for the last what twenty years off and on, twenty ish. Seventeen. Seventeen. Okay, cool. Um, so let's segue into something a little bit different. So um, you you were obviously there during the. Yes, you, I do have great coupon. Yes, yeah, awesome, perfect. Um, you were obviously there during the start of the the whole COVID nightmare and whatnot. So, um. Well, I, yeah. I, I mean, I was actually here, but. Oh, okay. Okay. Depending on what, depending on what you consider the start. Well, I I call it like February because you want that, a piece of my heart. You better start from the start. There you go, man. There you go. So, well, let's fit you know, like early February basically is when it all kind of really started to kick, and I think we started to take it seriously the middle of March here, right? For the most well, part, Seattle did. Yeah. Um, um. Yeah, I was on tour here. Basically, early February, I was on tour in Italy and Spain. Mm -hmm. um, and so that shows you that even there it wasn't interfering with events yet. And of course, Italy and Spain per capita are among the hardest hit countries. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we were still doing shows in both places. Uh, and then I went to L.A. for two weeks uh, mm -hmm. to work on the Posies album. And then I went back home. And then at the end of February, I came back to do another tour, uh, a continuation of my solo tour that i did last year uh, mm -hmm. where i was playing my 2001 album touched mm -hmm. basically right. and other things too but it's based around me playing that album and so um i was coming to do some music production uh with ren allen who i'd done an album with before mm -hmm. and so we were based at a studio in um southeast ohio in athens ohio um 
and to sweeten the deal, she kind of booked some shows in, in a region. So, you know, could bring in a little bank mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, I could be worth coming all that way to, to do three days of music production and build mm-hmm. a tour around it. And so I also added some dates. I did a date in DC and I did one in Minneapolis and Chicago and mm-hmm. uh, some dates in Texas. And I had a New Orleans date and then I was going to go to South by Southwest. Right. So that was the idea. Um, and actually, strangely enough, nearly all of it happened. Hmm. Um, obviously, South by Southwest didn't. Right. Um, and my New Orleans show didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's it. But I saw you Everything ended up. Else happened. You ended up doing a show from a friend's living room in New Orleans, though, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> so I went I, later on that venue because um, it was time to go home. Like that show was going to be March 17th and, and they couldn't open and there's just no point. I mean, it's just like, let's, mm-hmm. I'm going to go home now. And I, you know, well, I can still travel. Uh, so I went home on the 16th and got home on the 17th and that's when the borders closed, etc. Oh, you got lucky. But later in the, I got really lucky considering I had no passport when I, up until that day. Oh, really? Um, I, yeah. Because when I arrived in the States at the end of February, I, my passport was going to expire this year. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, I'm here for, you know, a month. I'll send it off and get it renewed. Oh, I, use a, I use a passport and visa services company that um, services the music industry in L.A. Mm-hmm. So I sent him my passport and put a, not a full rush, but a speed it up, you know, amount of uh, expedition on it. Um, so, you know, then it was about waiting for it to come back. So even though I could have canceled that tour probably a week before and nobody would have been a, uh, I mean, people would have understood, you know, because mm-hmm. I mean, by, by that show in Minneapolis, which is March 11th, it was already, people were starting to not show up, mm-hmm. you know, they'd buy tickets, but decided not worth the risk going out. And in some cases people were feeling sick then they didn't know if it's a cold or the flu or, right. you know, fucking whatever, uh, captain trips. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had no choice to carry on until I got my passport back. I had nowhere to go. So I just kept doing the shows and it got more and more interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, that last show that I played on March 15th at St. Andrews in uh, Houston, part of their Coffee House Live series, um, they didn't even have church that day. Um, but the guy running that show is a mensch and he was like, you got to let this show happen. This guy's from Europe and you know we'll, this will be the last one but you got to let it happen oh, that's great and of the hundred or so people who bought tickets I think maybe 24 people actually came Wow um, well I mean it, it, it is what it is and let's just say that that I had 75 tickets that might not have if it had been walk up I wouldn't have had that's true but people were happy to you know they, they understood and and I did the show so they're kind of <clears throat> up to them if they don't come um but you know that actually helped because you know that was that was it live music wise for some mm-hmm. time anyway uh my passport was ready the next day i got you know i mean basically i got a notification on sunday from the company saying hey your passport's going to be ready in la on um monday what do you want to do and i was like oh well i'll i'll check in tomorrow i'll give you guys a call and we'll figure out where to send it i was thinking about going to austin from there because mm-hmm. my flight original flight was leaving after south by southwest so i was going to just try and move it up 
um, but I hadn't figured it out yet. And I woke <laughs> up Monday morning, the 16th, in Houston, my hotel, with a voice in my head going, you got to go now. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, what? Huh? I don't, whose voice was that? I don't know. <laughs> it was 7 in the morning. Uh, I said, okay. So I wrote to the passport people saying, um, I'm going to come pick it up. Mm-hmm. So either hold it there or courier it over to my assistant in Burbank. I'll figure it out. Um, I looked up flights online. Houston is United Hub. So mm-hmm. I uh, had enough United miles, just enough United miles to get a flight uh, that was leaving 90 minutes. Wow. Bucks. Perfect. Uh, I got, uh, so I hauled ass to the airport, dumped the rental car, flew to LA. You know, I had my bags. I was planning on playing a posy show. So I had like, you know, synth and pedals and all this shit. Oh, and one suitcase. And, you know, I've been hauling all this crap around. I had a guitar. So I had all this crap. Anyway, my wonderful uh, assistant and friend and helper and good pal, Tina Dunn, came out to LA. Uh, Handed me the passports. Um, I got a flight right there, you know, uh, on the last flight leaving for Paris, um, hmm. and um, got on the plane, and that was that. That's awesome. So, so right now you're you're uh, you're going to kill me if I don't promote what you're doing right now. So right now you're doing a bunch of production work in your studio. I'll be fine, <laughs> and you'll be fine. No, we'll all be fine. But yeah, Just... I mean, basically, I do studio stuff. I mean, live music uh isn't really quite happening yet mm-hmm. um i did a show in germany um in september mm-hmm. while they had a little window where that was okay and that was cool i've been doing some online shows um i will be doing one next month uh in rwanda uh, it'll be a live show in rwanda but i'll be doing it also on the web mm-hmm. um i don't have that set up yet check in with uh if you follow me on um instagram at ken stringfellow that'd be the thing to do perfect, You'll, perfect. all and, is there and my instagram bio is a link tree that all my upcoming shows are in there when love it up. so um, you're actually anytime gonna... you know i do i do lots of studio work just like i'm working here in the studio uh, <laughs> in my studio in the seattle area mm-hmm. um and i have another studio in france and i'm always you know up for projects so one thing I will say is, uh, at this point, I'm planning on coming back to Seattle uh, February, March, and uh, I have some open dates. So if you're in the Seattle area, <laughs> uh, that's a great thing. You want to come and record as long as it's allowed. Um, you know, right now things are kind of shutting down, but I'm hoping by February they'll be open again. So actually, uh, we're very COVID safe here. That that's actually a good point, though. Are are studios part of the shutdown? Like. It, it's unclear. Yeah, the only businesses that are allowed to be open technically right now, because we went a step backwards in the last week, right? Um, are like uh, hair salons, uh, this kind of thing. Um, yeah, there's a list on the on the Open Safe or whatever it's called webpage. Um, so things of you know, indoor dining is now once again banned. Mm-hmm. Um, outdoor and takeaway is okay. So indoor gatherings are totally banned. Uh, outdoor gatherings are now down to five people yeah well, perfect um so you, the well anyway the weather's turned now so but the, those outdoor yoga classes are probably not really a thing but <laughs> still it's all it's all gone Did, I, I feel i feel um, bad for all the bars that are open right now or trying to stay open like yeah outside yeah, they can do takeaway <laughs> outside and bars in seattle no no 
that's <laughs> that's never going to go back in the bottle. No. You know, the, the drinking on the street is here to stay. We are now officially <clears throat> New Orleans. Well, I, you know, I, I don't see anything wrong. Like, you know, most of the world does something similar. So why, why can't yeah. Seattle, you know? Like, God, I remember like working on a record in Spain, it's completely reckless. And I wouldn't really do this now, but those are the days. I remember riding on the, the band guy's scooter. I'm like on the back of the scooter, but I've got a 40 ouncer and I'm just like, look, look, look. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, other countries are a little bit more lax and you know they're still they're not depopulated they haven't you know it's not it's, uh, not everybody in the country died because you know kids 18 year olds can drink wine right so okay one one last question here i, I meant to ask you before so that's what they all say yeah exactly you're actually gonna fly to rwanda yeah i mean as long as i can okay and mm. right now i can okay there's no there's nothing stopping me are you afraid of being rwanda stuck? welcomes american tourists uh, visitors or whatever i mean i'm playing a show so i'm not really a tourist right. but mm -hmm. i mean american visitors i'm not working per se it's a benefit concert yeah. for uh it'll be for uh, musicians without borders that's awesome for their work in rwanda and the solar sister organization mm -hmm. uh who do work in many places in africa not rwanda currently solar sister is not something that came from us even though it shares the name with one of our mm -hmm. songs uh solar sister does a uh, wonderful work um promoting um how we say economic freedom for women oh, okay via That's great. Uh, micro solar projects do me a favor uh, send me a link and I'll, I'll make sure i put it down below everything yeah when and this then is published musicians without borders do work uh in various places around the world um you know that music is uh, uh you know it's a vital part of life and and helps people in a number of ways uh community wise education wise uh, hope wise, um, mm -hmm. you know, just positive, uh, positive change wise. And, um, so, uh, me, me, that, that they do work, uh, in Rwanda. There's a music school they help out there and I'll be helping that school out, for example. That's incredible, man. Incredible. But you're, you're not, you're not afraid of being stuck there. Like if there's like a lockdown or whatnot, does that even enter your, you can always return to your home nation. Yeah. There's always a way. No, I guess that's true. I mean, there's embassy people. There's all kinds of people in Rwanda. You, like there was, there wouldn't be no extractions. You, you, you'd be able to get back. D does your wife worry when you take one of these trips, or is she just used to it by now? I think she's cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Hey, Ken, anything else you want to say, man? Uh, well, anyone who's interested in working with me music production wise can always drop me a line at ken at kenstringfellow.com or i really think everybody in the world should follow my instagram at kenstringfellow and you can always direct message me there that's perfect uh, so yeah that's perfect i hope that we all get through this i hope everybody we get through this with a minimal loss of life and welfare and um and that we come on the other side of this wiser and more compassionate I hope so too, and, man. And uh, that live music returns to our uh, way of life at some point. But I do believe that uh, online shows are here to stay, and I think they're really cool. I think that's yeah. a really interesting discovery. I think so too. Um, but yeah, I just hope, you know, let's hope things get better after they might get a worse for a mm, bit. <laughs> probably, probably. Yeah, you know, hey, but uh, we've been through tough stuff. Yeah, well, we there. have, and I, I gotta say, man, it's been it's been a lot of fun watching you over like the last what thirty, I don't even want to say thirty two years, thirty three, however long it's been. Um, thirty two, yeah. Yeah, 
um, you know, doing what you're doing and you keep moving and doing, you know, like shit you did in Senegal and whatever, like you, you've been moving and shaking for the last 32 years. Yeah. So it's awesome. Yeah. It's awesome. 100 countries visited, uh, of which I've done shows in 94. And that's, like that's incredible. You, you know, you need a travel block. That's what you need. Oh, I kind of had one for a while. Then I decided mm -hmm. to, um, I'm going to save that for a book. There you go. Perfect, man. Hey, perfect. Ken, great chatting to you, buddy. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Cheers. All right. Take care. Thank you.